0: The information provided in today's episode is not intended nor should be used for diagnosing or treating a health condition or disease. And if you're seeking personal medical advice, you should consult with a board certified physician. Under a rehearsal piano in a studio on the MGM lot in Hollywood in 1952, Debbie Reynolds crumbled. She was in the middle of preparing for singing in the rain, which would be her first leading role for the studio, alongside Gene Kelly, and the first time she'd have to dance, really. She was 19 years old, had three teachers, and was spinning around eight hours a day. It hurt everywhere, she wrote in her autobiography 60 years later. Most of all, my brain and my feet. She lay there under that piano until Fred Astaire coaxed her back up. She wasn't going to die, he told her. If you're not sweating, you're not doing it right. She shot Good Morning from eight in the morning until 11 o'clock that night. When it was over, she collapsed. For days, she didn't get out of bed. The studio had its own MD who wanted to administer what they called a vitamin shot, amphetamines. Possibly the same ones, Reynolds wrote, that ruined Judy Garland. This has been an excerpt from Vanity Fair's December 2022 to January 2023 issue from the article titled, Hollywood's Latest Diet Craze, Ozempic, the insulin drug with vanishing, literally, side effects. I'm Carissa Grohl, and this is Scammed Wellness. You're listening to Scammed Wellness, hosted by Carissa Grohl. Hello, I'm your host Carissa Grohl. I have my bachelor's in nutrition and dietetics, and I'm currently working on my master's in human nutrition. Throughout my personal and academic journey, I've discovered the dark side to health and wellness. Scammed Wellness is a podcast dedicated to breaking down the scams, scandals, and swindles within the wellness industry. Personally, storytelling is a method I admire because it allows us to immerse ourselves into the experience which can help us to better understand the world around us. The wellness industry is a multi-billion dollar business that is fastly growing thanks to social media. Inevitably, this brings misinformation that is not grounded in evidence-based science. I bring to you my personal experiences and my scientific knowledge to help you make informed decisions when it comes to your own health and wellness. If you love learning about everything from scammy influencers to botched supplement products and multi-level marketing scandals, then this is the podcast for you. Join me bi-weekly anywhere you listen to your podcast. Be sure to subscribe and thank you for listening. Towards the end of the 19th century and into the beginning of the 20th century, a cultural shift around body image was happening. The popularity of flappers and Hollywood movie stars pushed the image of thin women and athletic men. This shift led to an increasing demand in weight loss medication. Treatments around weight gain and specifically treating obesity have been around since the 1800s. Treatments ranged from seaweed to arsenic. By the 1940s, scientists discovered that amphetamines, a central nervous stimulant that we have talked about in the past, had anorectic effects, meaning that stimulants decreased appetite. This caused questions to form around utilizing stimulants for weight loss. Pharmaceutical companies began creating medications that included stimulants and appetite suppression, along with other components to counteract the side effects from stimulants. This is when the rainbow diet pill was created. Brightly colored capsules combine amphetamines, diuretics, laxatives, benzodiapines used to treat anxiety and depression, along with barbiturates, which can be used to treat seizures, specific anxieties, and insomnia. It's thought that the combination of benzodiapines were included to balance out the energized feelings one would get from the amphetamines. In reality, rainbow pills were marketed as the pill for perfection and included promises of energy, calmness, euphoria, and weight loss. The conversation around obesity was also changing. New evidence showed that that things like genetics and environment were also impacts on weight gain. This ultimately went against the conventional teachings of medical professionals during that time. However, once the Food and Drug Administration caught wind of the side effects of rainbow pills, which included heart conditions, addiction, and mental health conditions, they were promptly banned. By the 1990s, diet pills were known by everyone, along with their consequences. But this wouldn't stop drug manufacturers, physicians from prescribing them, or the public from wanting quick results. A rebrand of the rainbow diet pill was becoming popular. Fenfen, Fen, F-E-N, referring to finfluramine, an appetite suppressant, and fin, P-H-E-N, referring to fentramine, a type of amphetamine. Each of these drugs were approved by the FDA for single use at the time. However, they were never approved by the agency as a combination drug. In the 1970s, finfluramine, the F, was used to treat obesity, but had side effects that included nausea and anxiety. In 1992, Dr. Michael Wintrub at the University of Rochester, discovered that the combination of finfluramine and nifentramine could treat obesity through weight loss without any of the nasty side effects. The new drug nicknamed finfin would go on to gain popularity even without FDA approval. The maker of Finfluramine was a company known as American Home Products. While Finfin was very successful, American Home Products were rushing to create a similar drug to Finfluramine. The patent for Finfluramine was about to expire, and this meant that other drug manufacturers could start producing Finfluramine and financially benefit from Finfin's success. American Home Products created Dexfinfluramine, also known as the drug name Redux. American Home Products pushed for FDA approval despite reports of heart conditions related to finfluramine and finfin. American Home Products claimed that dexfinfluramine and fentramine would be even more effective in treating obesity, but it turns out they never properly tested the combination for safety. By 1997, two studies were published in the New England Journal of Medicine that linked both finfin and dexfin to several fatal side effects related to the heart. After these publications, complaints of other people's experiences flooded in. People claimed they had side effects with both finfin, dexfin, and with finfluramine and dexfinfluoramine alone. The FDA intervened once again to further investigate these claims. Eventually, a ban by the FDA was placed on the manufacturing and distribution of both finfluramine and dexfinfluramine, along with a combination drug that included fentramine. However, fentramine was not found to have the same side effects and the ban did not include fentramine. Currently, fentramine is still FDA approved for short-term use, less than 12 weeks. Several clinical trials show that the drug can cause around five to 7% weight loss which is around 10 to 14 pounds over three to six months. This is considered healthy weight loss. However, the effects of phentermine can be different person to person, which means not everyone will respond the same. Additionally, the weight loss effects seem to fade away after a year of use. Recently, phentermine has been combined with another appetite suppressant, tapiramate, a medication used to treat seizures. This combination medication is sold under the brand name Quizima and was FDA approved in 2012. The studies around Quisima have shown decreased in waist circumference, improved insulin sensitivity, improved blood sugar, and reduced blood pressure. Although some people experience side effects, the FDA has ensured that Quisima is safe. Thank you for listening to today's story on FenFen. I have a lot to say on this topic, so let's just break it down. Um, I definitely wanna leave you with some takeaways that we can learn from this scandal, that is what it is. So I first want to reiterate that the things I have to say are not medical advice. And if you are considering weight loss medication to please speak to a board certified physician, endocrinologist, a specialist. And I also do wanna preface what I am about to say with, that if this is a route that you choose to take or you're forming an opinion on it that what i provide for you today is just information and i am informing you so that you can thus make an informed decision this is not me talking at you or coming at you with an agenda One of my favorite things about science and nutrition is that nothing is black and white. Nutrition is a science and science is not black and white. There's a lot of gray area and everything has its place and there are nuances that need to be addressed. And so I want you to know that before we get into this. So as a future dietitian, my role is to understand these medications and their mechanisms, and then I can help future clients or patients on them and other routes they can take. But I also do want to address that I am not your dietitian and kind of going back to, I know I keep making these disclaimers, but seriously, um, I'm not your dietitian. I'm not your health professional Everyone deserves individualized health care, so please speak to a doctor. Anyways, so this this brings me to my first point. Oftentimes, people are divided when it comes to weight loss interventions. There's usually two camps. The first camp um, includes people who consider medical interventions like medication and weight loss surgery to be the easy way out. And they prefer to stick to traditional forms of weight loss, such as diet and exercise, And then there's the second camp of individuals who want to take these non-traditional routes for various reasons. Maybe they do want to just lose weight without changing their lifestyle, or maybe traditional forms of weight loss have not worked for them in the past and they're seeking other options. My view is it's complicated and such is life. (laughs) The reality is that even with treatment like weight loss medication, if self-efficacy around health isn't addressed, such as diet and exercise, but also components like stress management and sleep, then results from medication will be temporary. And there's actually research that supports weight gain occurring after medication is stopped, similar to how weight gain is seen in individuals who come off extreme diets. This episode is also an extension from episode eight, where I talked about ephedra, which is an herbal supplement marketed as weight loss that's um, proved to have similar cardiovascular side effects that Finfin had. And, you know, throughout history, we have seen that diet pills have even taken off in like the wellness industry. So you might, I kind of did before I really got into this. You might separate like actual prescription medication um, as more of health care, which that's how I see it. And then things like supplements, um, especially like herbal supplements, uh, things that you can just like buy over the counter as more of a wellness product. But the more I dive into supplements and yes, supplements are also prescribed in certain cases, definitely, I'm just, the the lines are blurred there for me. They are starting to become really blurred, and the more I dive into all of this, the more mind-blowing it is to me that supplements are not regulated by the Food and Drug Administration, which is the FDA. Um, it's mind-boggling to me. And today's episode takes a deeper spin on how Finfin fin fell under the rug when it comes to FDA regulation and I believe that this story, this scandal, highlights the importance of medication regulation. Additionally, there's a new character in the weight loss medication world that is getting a lot of publicity. Yes, I'm talking about Ozempic. (laughs) Um, Allegedly, there are several celebrities and influencers taking Ozempic, which Originally it was a medication that is used to treat diabetes. It is a medication that's used to treat diabetes. Um, new fi- findings have shown that it can cause weight loss, but it has not been approved for weight loss. Some doctors will prescribe Ozempic for weight loss and this is called off-label, which is legal. And this was all news to me. So we know Finfen taught us that maybe we shouldn't go around mixing two drugs together and prescribing them to people, and we know that with medications like Ozempic uh, becoming more popular, they're now on more people's mind. Whenever I was doing the research for this episode, I swear every time I log on to like Facebook or Instagram, I have an ozempic ad and it's insane because i was not getting ozempic ads until of course i started googling them and like learning more about ozempic and just reading the comments on all of that stuff is very interesting and yeah that, that that's like a whole other <laughs> a, a, other situation that deserves its own episode but i'm sure you're wondering i was wondering like what are the side effects of to taking these medications and I want to acknowledge that weight loss and weight gain and obesity are very complex topics and they are also very sensitive topics for certain people and you know I previously worked in obesity research in undergrad and grad school and that experience taught me that the mechanisms of obesity is like staring at a roadmap and not like a roadmap on your GPS, like on your app, like your Google Maps or whatever. Like, no, like a legit paper roadmap and just crazy complicated pathways. And I just hope that that can give you some kind of visualization for the complexity of obesity and how our body gains and loses weight. And also, we are still, still trying to figure out the pathways and mechanisms around obesity. So with that being said, it's important for people to understand the risks and the benefits for any medical intervention they are about to embark on, and along with a care team to guide them through the journey. However, we can highlight the fat phobia within society and the need to want to lose weight in order to fit into the beauty standards society sets for us. And not to continuously play devil's advocate here, but one also has to acknowledge and empathize with navigating the world in a bigger body. Due to fat phobia, everyday tasks may not be as easy for someone in a larger body, For example, chairs in waiting rooms or on planes, like that's just one example of what individuals go through, individuals in larger bodies go through. So, with all of that said, let's address the mechanism in which these drugs work and how you can potentially lose weight. According to Quisima's website, Quasima works by reducing appetite throughout the day, making it less likely to emotionally eat and reduces cravings. The website also states that Quasima changes the way certain foods taste, but doesn't specify what foods are going to taste different. My guess is that it's either sugary, carby foods, salty foods, or foods that tend to be higher in fat. So these can look like what one would maybe categorized as junk food. I hate that term. Um, But if we're thinking like junk food, um, that kind of falls into the line of like pastries and chips, salty foods and processed foods. So what I'm curious about, and maybe you are too, is how this alters our normal hunger fullness cues. And if we stop taking the medication, we don't know how to listen to those hunger cues properly because they've been inhibited. And also, if the foods that once tasted undesirable now taste really good, then potentially this could lead to overeating those foods and contribute to disordered eating. Of course, with all these questions, I dove into the literature there weren't many studies out there regarding this topic, which addresses the need for more research. Hint, 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 if there's any researchers out there interested in this topic. But I did find a randomized clinical trial published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, also known as JAMA. Rabino and colleagues led two groups of individuals who took a weight loss medication, like Ozempic, for 20 weeks. Group one stopped the weight loss medication after 20 weeks and were then given a placebo. And if you're not familiar with what a placebo is, it's like a sugar pill, essentially. It's, it's nothing. Um, it's to test to see if the actual medication is doing what it's said it's going to do. And so they give a placebo to kind of mimic that in a randomized controlled trial. So the participants had no idea that they were taking the placebo. They just thought that they were continuing the medication. So then there was group two. They continued the weight loss medication. Group one gained two-thirds of the weight back compared to group two, who continued to lose weight. Now I want to bring it back to our hunger and fullness cues. Just to give a little bit more context of what this process looks like. So our bodies are beautifully designed to alert us when we are hungry and when we are full. The endocrine system is made up of cells and glands that release hormones into the bloodstream. Think glands like your thyroid, your pancreas, and your adrenal glands, which sit on top of your kidneys. These hormones travel to their target cell and they help regulate homeostasis. Homeostasis is this sweet balance your body is constantly trying to maintain. Think peak Zen. The main regulatory functions of the endocrine system are very vast. And the endocrine system is involved in regulating metabolism, tissue development, reproduction, and blood pressure, just to name a few. The endocrine system is also responsible for regulating our hunger, fullness cues, and digestion. There are many hormones that influence appetite, for simplicity's sake, we are going to focus on two main characters. These two hormones help tell our brain we're either hungry or full, or when to eat and when to stop eating. Ghrelin is the hormone your stomach produces and releases when it's empty, which signals to the brain that we need to eat in order to refuel the energy output we're trying to maintain. How I remember ghrelin in school is that our stomachs growl when they are hungry, so I picture ghrelin as a growling gremlin, if if that helps you remember it. Something interesting to note is that ghrelin was found to be lower in people who had higher weight and obesity and higher in people who restricted their calorie intake, a phenomenon researchers are still trying to understand. The second character is leptin. Uh, Leptin is the second hormone, and it's produced and released by our fat cells to let our brain know we are now full and we don't need to eat anymore. Another character that is involved in our appetite is GLP-1, also known as glucagon-like peptide 1. The job of GLP-1 is to help regulate your glycemic control, which is just a fancy way of saying our blood sugar. And... We all might be familiar with insulin, which is what's released when glucose, aka sugar, enters our cells. So medications like Ozempic are considered GLP-1 agonist, meaning they also function similarly to help regulate blood sugar, um, and that helps with managing type 2 diabetes, which is why I wanted to talk about GLP-1. However, these medications still come with side effects and more research is needed to understand how these medications alter our basic human hunger and fullness cues. A tool I have found helpful, and I know so many others have also found helpful, and there's research to support it, is intuitive eating. Intuitive eating is a practice that includes 10 principles that can help an individual connect back to their hunger fullness cues learn to eat for their body's needs, and to unlearn patterns around crash dieting. I will say that like any tool, intuitive eating isn't one size fits all. Like most things, we can take what resonates and leave the rest. Working with a registered dietitian who specializes in intuitive eating can be extra helpful when navigating this route. I know, shameless dietitian plug. But health is more than just looking a certain way. Lifestyle factors can truly impact a person's overall well-being, and research also supports this. So, if it's so easy, then why is it so hard? That's the age-old question, and it comes down to many factors. Some being that everyone is at different stages of change, on different schedules, and in different areas of life. If I can leave you with anything today... I want you to take the day to think about what health means to you. Like actually sit there and think about what your definition of health is. Write it down, type it in your notes app, or just ponder on the question. Getting a clearer idea of what our personal definition of a word is helps us reclaim that word. And it also helps us separate our definition of it from society's definition of it. And it can also help us learn to build in habits that fit our own individual lifestyle. Thanks for listening. And I hope you found value in today's episode. If you'd like to support Scammed Wellness, rating and reviewing the podcast helps tremendously. Also, follow Scammed Wellness on Instagram at Scammed Wellness Podcast. Stay well and stay skeptical.